thing that investors said to me was they were so embarrassed. Even though they were all shocked and they sort of felt like they'd been defrauded, they couldn't say anything publicly because they just felt like idiots. How did I manage to get done over by these people? The former COO said to me they had been working on a product for 13 years and they had never got the product out. How did I not think that that was a problem? Welcome to a very special episode of Secret Leaders from Infamous Media. I'm Dan Murray-Serta, and today we're going to be covering a breaking startup scandal, the UK's very own version of the Theranos story. This is an audio exclusive. My guest is Sarah McCorkadell, the founder and CEO of Corp, a digital platform that helps brands find the most effective influencers and how to work with them. But before Sarah was a founder, she was an awesome journalist, joining the Mail Online as a reporter back in 2007 and later becoming an editor for Condé Nast and the Huffington Post. We're talking to Sarah, the journalist today, to find out more about the story she's just broken in the Sunday Times about a startup called Terillion Laser Technologies, or TLT. The company was founded by a husband and wife team, Dr. Sandeep and Nita Shah, who bamboozled everyone from the UK government to PwC. They raised millions and achieved a £52 million valuation before everything came crashing down weeks later. The product they promised was a revolutionary wearable blood pressure monitor powered by a secret proprietary algorithm. Sound familiar? Look, there's so much to digest in this story, so I'm just going to hand it over to Sarah to tell us where she first heard about Terillion Laser Technologies. I guess it was kind of April, May 2020, lockdown one. And, you know, I'm talking to other founders and we're talking about, you know, like just our woes, <laughs> trying to get through that first part of the pandemic, obviously mass uncertainty. And one of the founders I spoke to accidentally tipped me off about the story, it said that, you know, there were these investors who'd been scammed out of millions because of this blood pressure thing that didn't really exist. And this person wouldn't tell me the name of the company because I immediately, you know, the journalist and me immediately went, what? Like, what was the name of the company? And this founder wouldn't say they got a bit spooked. But, you know, I thought about it for 24 hours. And, you know, I have to say, you know, I, the reason I didn't go straight into it was I'm a sole founder. At the time, uh, my oldest son was five. I was homeschooling him. My youngest son wasn't even one yet. My husband works for the NHS as an engineer. He was at the hospital every day. I did not have time to investigate a med tech scandal. I couldn't stop thinking about it. So uh, 24 hours after I'd been tipped off, I thought, I'm just gonna find out the name of this company because I'm pretty sure I can do that. I just wanna know who it is. And I did a bit of digging and I found the name within an hour. And then I thought, I'm just going to friend one of the directors on LinkedIn and see if he gets back to me. And he probably won't even connect with me, but that's fine. I'm just going to give it a try. And an hour later, he connected with me. So I sent him a message and I said, can I talk to you about Vicardio? And within a minute, he just sent me his number. And we talked on the phone for three hours that afternoon. And by the end of the call, I thought, oh, I'm going to have to expose this. <laughs> I'm going to have to you know, get into this story and I'm going to have to get it commissioned somewhere really good. And I'm going to have to understand every single thing that happened in this 13 year scam. Okay. So what about your colleagues? So you're running a company. How did you approach the fact that you were going to go and do this kind of, you know, real grassroots investigative journalism work on top of your day job? You know, what was the sacrifice? Um, how did you communicate that you were going to spend this time doing it? 
Well, I mean, the first thing I did was I spoke about uh, the story in our morning meeting and I, I told the whole team and everyone was really compelled by it because, you know, we're all journalists. And I said, you know, I, I think I'm going to like dig into this. And I was actually, I was doing all of the interviews in the evening. So even though, to be honest, I usually work day and night anyway on Cork, I thought, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to take a couple of even, evenings out where I'm doing, you know, like an hour on Zoom doing interviews, get back into Cork, juggle it best I can. I think as founders, we're used to juggling a lot, you know, and at that time, to be honest, you know, we had... At the start of the year, we had closed a really big deal and it was going to massively increase the valuation of the company and, you know, our top line. And that deal disappeared in the pandemic. So we were sort of, we'd been set up for this deal and then all of a sudden the deal didn't exist. And so we were kind of recalibrating, to be honest. And in that space, you know, we were getting back out, we were doing sales, uh, we were doing a lot of calls, we knew a lot of budgets were frozen, we knew we were looking at maybe two months before we got back on track when it came to our sales pipeline. So there was actually a bit of a gap. And in that time, when I started reporting on the story, I was telling the other journalists in the morning who are sort of between 25 and 44, um, you know, this is how I'm reporting the story. This is how I got the contact details. And it kind of turned into like, a, I guess, like a learning moment for all of us. So I really was sharing, you know, this is how I'm tracking down the story. This is how I got the administration documents. And I think that was quite interesting. And also, you know, I, I, the whole team proved the first draft. You know, so it was kind of like, you know, I we were all kind of in it um, and, and everyone kept asking, like, oh, what happened with that investor? What happened with the inventor in America? And what happened here? What happened there? So colleagues were really supportive. You know, we've been together for like four years. We haven't. It's been the same team since the start. So um, we're quite lucky in that company culture is tight. We know how to work together. We can rely on each other and somehow I managed to fit this in as well. So we know how Sarah came across this story, but what actually happened? How did TLT build such an impressive image with almost nothing to back it up? So, you know, Sandeep and Nita Shah, they were very um, credible characters, to be honest. And I have to say, you know, before I get into the trajectory of the story, that was the thing that really shocked so many people about this who were involved. You know, everyone from the investors to the administrator. I spoke to the administrator, you know, um, last July and he said to me, I said, is this normal? Like, do you how many administrations have you done in your you know, 25 year career? And he said, you know, more than I can remember, and I've never seen anything like this. He said, usually a scam is really obviously a scam. You know, usually you don't Google the person who owns the company and find search results which include them winning awards and which include them being endorsed by the government of their country. And, you know, the incredible articles about them where it's just, you know, pure praise. He said that this is one of the things that makes this so shocking. He says, I really understood why people believed in this company. I guess that kind of sets it up to say, you know, the founders were very credible. They had worked in science and medicine for their whole careers. Um, you know, Sandeep was um, a GP, but, you know, he was very passionate about blood pressure. He had worked for Bart's Trust. He'd really dedicated his life to blood pressure. And there's this video of him in 2012 and he's presenting and he's saying how, you know, the way in which our blood flows through our body, that's the thing that makes the human race such 
such a successful species. That's why we can stand up. That's why we are at the top of the food chain, you know. And it's amazing to watch him be this person who he just loves blood pressure, you know. And I could see why he was so investable. Um, But at the start, you know, the thing about Sandeep was because he loved blood pressure, he really understood why it was such a problem that the way in which we measure blood pressure at the moment is it's very inaccurate. So, you know, one doctor I spoke to said, you know, it's inaccurate 40% of the time. And I said, well, is that a problem? Like, is that abnormal? And he said, well, think about it. If the airline industry thought that they were getting it wrong 40% of the time, nobody would get on a flight. And I thought, yeah, okay, that makes sense. So, you know, the he, he wanted to create a device in which people could monitor their own blood pressure. They could do it non-invasively. They could see it in real time. And they could do it through a device that just fit in with their life. You know, they could look at sort of a Fitbit style wearable on their wrist and say, oh, okay, so my blood pressure is up. I'm going to take measures to do something about that. Or I'm going to call my doctor. And this idea of having a much more independent healthcare. And, you know, like hypertension is something that is suffered by 1.13 billion people on this planet. So it's a significant problem. So I do believe, you know, Sandeep's initial goal and his intentions were very good. Uh, You know, I genuinely believe that. And so he didn't know how to create, you know, a device. So he contacted an inventor in Minneapolis called John Borges. And John Borges is like someone who has been in medtech since, you know, medtech began sort of, you know, he's renowned guy in Minneapolis where there are so many medtech companies. He worked for Medtronic, a very passionate inventor. And John worked on this device for a year, trying to create a prototype of this device that Sandeep wanted that would measure blood pressure in real time, non-invasively. And he came back to Sandeep in 2007 and he basically said, this isn't possible because you need the artery. If you're going to measure something accurately, you need access to the artery. So he said, you know, he produced this kind of like crude prototype that didn't really do what Sandeep wanted it to do. And he said to Sandeep, you know, this is this is just the truth. I have to tell you the truth. Your idea is good, but it's not going to work. And Sandeep fell out with John and he threatened him with legal action if he ever said anything bad about the company. The company is called Cerulean Laser Technologies, but the device in the end was called Vicardio. Just like there's so much in the story. I feel I could I see how it could get away from a listener so easily yeah and but and also just on that point you know that behavior of firing someone as soon as they do that very same as elizabeth holmes it's exactly what she used to do if you would question anything you were out no matter your seniority yeah yeah i mean that's the thing you know and, and also like the the immediate jump to legal action you know and, and sort of like using fear tactics and you know it was really interesting when i spoke to john because you know, I said to him, thank you so much for talking to me and for going on the record, because a lot of people felt like they couldn't. And he said, you know, I'm not scared of him anymore. And that's the thing. You know, I think that a lot of the people who came into this company, they are passionate about medtech. They they want to make healthcare better. You know, they really care about making a difference. And then things ended badly for them with Sandeep. And, you know, and he threatened them and, and made them feel like, you know, either that they were charlatans or that they were going to, there was going to be bad consequences for them, essentially. Which, you know, it really did remind me of um, of Theranos. So anyway, you know, so 
over the next four years, so John, I think he said the last time he spoke to Sandeep was 2008. Then in 2011, um, Sandeep and Nita, uh, they relaunched uh, the sensor that John had created and they called it the TLT Sapphire. And they said it could measure beat to beat blood pressure anywhere on the body, uh, you know, and they talked about it. They got invited on BBC Radio 2 and Simon Mayo's show and the BBC reporters like, so you can measure blood pressure anywhere on your body with this thing and they're like yes and we're going to employ 2,000 people in the next three years and it's kind of like they're they're building up this story this is when you know they start to really go for it with press you know and John said to me he was watching from Minneapolis all of this press coming out about the company he said he was just rolling his eyes he was like that's that sensor doesn't do that that's my sensor and it doesn't do any of this stuff and, you know, Sandy was invited to talk to the British Business Embassy in front of an uh, audience of potential investors by the government as part of the Olympics, the 2012 Olympic celebrations. And he talked about the company. He talked about this non-invasive beat to beat blood pressure. And, you know, and a lot of what he says, it's really interesting because in the talk, a lot of what he's saying, you can tell that the kind of moderator is like, what? what are you saying? Like, none of this makes sense. Like, no normal person can understand what you're saying. But something which everyone who was involved in the company and a lot of investors said was, Sandeep just bamboozled people with science and bullshit. So, you know, a combination of credible theories and just complete nonsense. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months, and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI, but until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. How many people understand blood pressure? 
you know, like how many people understand the measurement of blood pressure? Like the educational journey I had to go on to report this story was quite intense because actually I thought, I don't understand anything that anyone's saying to me about this. So I actually have to really educate myself here. But I mean, that was the thing, you know, People, do, he, he was able to convince people that he was this kind of genius. Um, but mostly people who sort of didn't really understand what he was talking about, you know, like, so there were, you know, some people who, um, like early investors, they, they just thought he seemed really impressive and they invested in them and, and the company and they never saw their money again. But, you know, they just... They just believed him. You know, he was very persuasive, very convincing. Um, and, and, you know, one of the investors said there was just such an asymmetry of knowledge between him and the people who he was asking for money, basically. And so, yeah, so they're building up all this press. And, you know, the, the public persona of the company is sort of, you know, just exploding. But in the background, they're not making any money because essentially tech companies are interested in what they're doing, but they won't let anyone see under the bonnet. So they won't let anyone see this magical algorithm that allows the sensor to calculate blood pressure. And so, you know, it's impossible to make revenue if you won't share any details about your product. And so in the background, the company is basically going into administration. The company's about to go bust, but they're able to kind of persuade people, um, you know, that actually this is going to be massive. We just need a bit of investment. If we can just get a bit of investment, this is going to make billions. And so at each phase of the company, you know, there are these investors who come in and they really buy into the company and they put in lots of money. And then they spend like maybe six months working with Sandeep and Nita and they basically become more and more freaked out by the experience until the point comes where they're like, I need to get out of this. Like, I can't stay in this company. This company is there's something wrong here. Um, you know, one of the investors from kind of like 2013, 2014 time, he said to me, after a few months, there's just little cracks appearing everywhere. And he said, I didn't know what was wrong with this company but I knew I had to get out. And so that happens sort of from, I guess, 2012 through to 2017. And then in 2017, this investor called David Pierce comes on board and he leads a round of like 1.5 million. They've got investment coming in from Silicon Valley and Minneapolis as well. And again, you know, it starts to seem like, oh my God, they're going to do it. They're getting all of this press. PwC um, selects them as part of the UK um, delegation to go to the Great Festival of Innovation in Hong Kong. And it's kind of like, oh my God, like they're going to become a unicorn. They're finally going to do it. But in the background, again, you know, they've got Apple interested. You know, they go to um, Silicon Valley, they meet Apple, they meet Apple in London as well. But again, they won't tell anyone about the algorithm. The algorithm can never be known by anyone except them and their software engineer. You know, they go to meet the head of um, health at Google. And one of the guys who was there with Sandeep said he had to kick him under the table because he was just talking so much crazy bullshit. But, and you know, the guy at Google was just like, what, <laughs> what are you saying? So, you know, one by one, these big tech giants are like really excited and then sort of fade back because they're like, oh, you're a bit scary. 
And so it gets to this point where, you know, all of these things happen, investors come and go, people lose their money. And then in the end, um, the company goes into administration in September 2019, after taking investment in, in the August, a valuation of 52 million. So, you know, within like three weeks, it's in administration. And David Pierce, the investor from 2017, who had led that round, he comes back in and he says, I want to bid for the assets because I really believe in this and I want to get this product out. I still think it could change the world. I still think it could win the Nobel Prize. And him and a fellow investor go to Sandeep and Nita's lab. And in the lab, it's some of the employees, it's people who've worked with the company, and it's these investors, it's the administrator. And they say to um, the Shaz software engineer, Mukram, okay, you have to show us the algorithm now. And Sandeep and Nita aren't there, but Mukram's still terrified. He's like shaking. He's like, I cannot show you this algorithm. But the administrator's like, you have to. So he loads it up on his computer, and it's just six lines of JavaScript. And the investors are like, just stunned because, you know, one of them was like, he's like a computing scholar. And he said, you know, it was a GCSE level sum. It wasn't an algorithm. It was barely an equation. It, you know, it, it was just like a sum. And that sum had a 52 million valuation and 53 people had invested in this company, you know, and, and that was the thing. And then everyone just left. And the assets of the company were sold for £175,000 in December. So £52 million valuation in August, sold for £175K in December of the same year. Now, I guess the, uh, the question I want to know is sort of, where does this story come to you, so to speak? Like, who else was noticing this? Who else was, you know, looking to bring this to the papers and to the world? Why hadn't anyone else sort of cottoned onto it or was it sort of just so well obfuscated that it, they were just making it seem out to be not of interest to anyone what was going on there well you know like when i googled the company this is the thing there's nothing bad or suspect about the company when you google it like you know and obviously you know as always happens like things are sold for an undisclosed sum so you know if you looked at the trajectory of the company just by doing a google you would see that they'd had loads of press great praise, won awards, and then they were acquired, you know, like pretty normal. But I think, you know, the thing that investors said to me was they were so embarrassed, you know, like even though they were all shocked and they sort of felt like they'd been defrauded. And I don't know if we can characterize this in frauds. Part of me thinks we can, part of me thinks we can't. But they definitely felt like they had been defrauded. They definitely felt like this was criminal. But even though they felt that, they still felt like they couldn't say anything publicly because they just felt like idiots. They were like, how did I manage to get done over by these people? You know, and, and in the aftermath, you know, like the former COO said to me, you know, they had been working on a product for 13 years and they had never got the product out. He said, how did I not think that that was a problem? You know, like people would kind of say things like, it was all there, like, you know, and, and that's it. And it's kind of similar to Theranos in that way. You know, there's alarm bells everywhere. But for some reason, you know, people do tune into the narratives that they want to tune into. And I think the idea that 
you're going to um, change the world and also that you're going to be the clever person who invested in a unicorn. All of that is really enticing. And, you know, that's something that um, a lot of the investors said, like, you don't want to be the investor who passed by on the next unicorn. And they said that's like something that, you know, that would haunt them. Sure. And FOMO, right? And actually, sometimes the technology isn't quite there. But if you continue down the same track, and even if you're papering over some cracks, it does eventually catch up and it does eventually get there. You know, and that's the truth of building startups. And sometimes, you know, I'm sure you've done product demos where, you know, it's not actually your software isn't actually in the place that you're necessarily saying it is. But the end result to the client is the same, which is like we've got a bunch of people here working super hard to make sure you're a happy client one way or another. The tech will catch up. The difference is understanding the integrity that is required to deliver on the promise one way or another is the alignment that you are genuinely trying to do that thing. And I think where this sounds very different is at some point you have to say, and I appreciate everything that you said about the founders and the credibility and the passion and the expertise as well. Like most importantly, it's worth saying a lot of experience um, in blood pressure, but six lines of code, that is like a, is an insult. It's not even a basic attempt. Yeah, no, I mean, that's the thing. Like, that was really, like, the big question that I grappled with through the investigation was, like, you know, you have the passion and you have the money, so why didn't you just make the thing? And the only the only reason that I can really come up with is that they knew it wasn't possible. You know, John Borgos, the inventor, told them in 2007, it's not possible. You know, from there, I can kind of see how you might be, like, you have that founder self-belief and you're like, do you know what? He can't do it, but I'm going to find someone else who can, you know, like I could see how you would bounce off that and still try. But, you know, again, like th there was this other investor uh, around about 2014, 2015 time. They told him they could turn the sensor into a Fitbit. They told him that, you know, it was going to be on the rest of every Strava loving millennial. Um, and then, you know, six months into their relationship where he was certain it was going to get to market within 12 months, um, Sandeep said, um, actually, this can't be used on the wrist. The sensor is not going to take a blood pressure reading on the wrist. And for it to have a chance, the person has to be sitting still. So, you know, there's moments through the company's history where it has come out by investors' account that they knew it wasn't possible. And that is the thing. It is that thing of why wouldn't you do it if you had everything? You've got the endorsement. You've got the money. You've got the passion. You've got amazing people around you. Why don't you do it? Because it's not possible. And you know it. But you like being a founder. And you like people kind of thinking you're a genius. And you like the lifestyle. You know, like this is just anecdotal from various people I interviewed, but, you know, uh, one of the investors said, and I haven't seen these financial documents, but one of the investors said they were paying, Sandy and Nita were paying themselves like 300K a year. Now, you know, for like a pre-revenue company, that is significant. I mean, even for a banker, that's quite good, isn't it? It's like a good wage. <laughs> There's not many industries that pay 300K. That's outrageous. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, they, I think that there was an element of... The next investor, the next thing, we're going to do it. We're going to crack this. And until then, we're kind of faking it until we make it. And they had become accustomed to this lifestyle. I mean, it's it's hard for me to really get to the bottom of it because, you know, they wouldn't talk to me. And then, you know, Sandeep Shah, the co-founder, he was found dead last year. There was a lot of rumors around, like, uh, what him and Nita were doing after 
the company went into administration and the assets were sold. Um, you know, a couple of people said to me, oh, I heard that they're working for the company uh, that bought the assets. Another person said to me, oh, Sandeep's not working for that company. I'm not sure what he's doing. And so the kind of, you know, I had got in touch with Sandeep on LinkedIn. I'd sent him emails, never heard back. And so, I, you know, I don't really know like what he was doing from the administration in September until he was found dead a year later. But what I do know is that he was living in Edgware and he was living with his mother, who's an elderly lady. And when he didn't come down that morning, which was mid-September, uh, she got worried and she raised the alarm and he was found dead upstairs. It wasn't real suspicious. I believe he died by suicide. And it's so tragic. Like the sort of, I think that to go from being this, you know, incredibly compelling, dynamic doctor with such passion to things ending in that way, you know, the month of his 56th birthday, it's awful. And with Nita, I know you were unable to get a hold of her for comment or anything, but you, like, where is she? Like, what's her sort of story post demise of the company? I can only say what I've heard from hearsay, rumours, um, things that people around the company have told me. You know, I spoke to Sandeep's best friend and he said, yeah, you know, she's she's working for the company that bought the assets. And, you know, the thing for me with Nita was I really wanted to make sure she knew that the story was coming, you know, like because I felt like her husband has died and she's gone through this trauma of regardless of how the company ended and what they did there is the chance that they still thought they were going to do it and i think that to go through the trauma of having to accept that you know the company's gone into administration and it's not going to happen and what are they going to do now you know i i, I think I, I was quite mindful of being a founder myself i was quite mindful of this other person's how it would impact them. So, you know, like I, I tried to get in touch with her in various ways and also contacted people who she knew. And I just said, look, can you just let her know it's coming? And I can take comment up until this date, you know, all that stuff. And, you know, and I've, I've heard various things, but none of it's like concrete. And I just wonder what you do after going through all of that. You know, I really do. And I think like that's where being a founder myself maybe part of the reason I felt like I really wanted to be the person who broke the story and found out the story because I felt like I never wanted to do a hatchet job, you know? Like I never wanted to paint Sandeep and Nita as villains because I think, you know, I, I, I really went to great lengths to get good testimony because I think that we know as founders, we put ourselves into a situation where you're in fake it till you make it culture and there's an element of everyone else is doing it. So if you're not, you know, like, how do you get on? You know, I, I, I really felt a lot of empathy in a way. Yes, good. I can, I can tell you do. I guess let's come to it from the other side of the position then. Um, what about the investors? Like, did you get a chance to speak to many of the investors? You know, there were friends and family that put in, in money. Not everyone that puts in money into founders is wealthy, actually. Like, you know, sometimes people put in money even 5k is like exceptionally meaningful to people and can make or break and there's so much hope tied up to the outcome of these things as well so i'd love some of the perspective that you learned in your investigative experience speaking to some of these people oh yeah i mean like investors reaction to all of this ranged from like heartbroken to 
just like this fury that they, you know, there was a couple of them who said, I'll never get over this, you know, and, and that was something that I kind of thought, part of the reason, again, I wanted to do the story was I kind of thought, you know, it was very hard for them to do due diligence. But also, I think, you know, if you are an investor and maybe you're not an investor who can afford to take risks necessarily, you know, like you are more of like an earnest person who wants to contribute to something worthwhile. You have to understand who you're investing in and what the company is, because, you know, even though I think this is a crazy story, I guarantee it's not the only company that it's happened to. So, you know, some of the investors were just furious. The ones who had like the money to lose, if you know what I mean, like the wealthier ones, you know, some of them were kind of like a bit more philosophical and they were like, you know, I took a punt. It's kind of like a mad story, but whatever. And then other people were just like, I would have done anything to make this come to fruition. And I feel like an idiot. I don't know if I'm going to invest in anything else again. One guy said, the reason I'm talking to you is we have to send a message to the startup community that this is not okay. It is not okay to behave this way. It's not okay for founders to treat us like this. And, you know, the, the relationship has to be balanced. I thought like the most emotive investor interview I did was with someone who had actually known Sandeep for most of his life. And he was an older man and he had worked as a GP and he said, you know, he put in 40K and he said, you know, for a lot of people, that's not a lot of money. But for me, it was very, very hard earned. Listening to him on that call, I just thought, yeah, like investing is like an emotive thing for a lot of people. It's really, you know, them putting a stamp on what they want their legacy to be. And, you know, I, I really... I really felt for those people. And I know that for some of them, the story coming out is closure. So I understand that, uh, you know, the investor stuff could be really emotive, but I'd love to know, like, did you get to grips with where people told different stories at different times of the journey? Because, you know, it was different names, different products, different investors. What would happen if people asked to see any evidence of anything? Like, what did you learn? Um, okay, so it was the same story every time. So every cycle of inv investment, every performance by the founders, same story. And this is where I think, you know, investors from previous cycles not saying anything publicly was the thing that allowed this to continue. You know, like people's shame and embarrassment meant that other people got done. But it was like the same story. And what they would say is, you know, they would bring this prototype and they would put it on the investor's wrist and they would say, okay, this is going to like, look at this, this is your blood pressure. And the investor would kind of be like, oh my God, wow, yeah, that kind of seems right. You know, sort of like the Theranos thing. Yeah, like those results kind of seem right. Oh my God, this is amazing. And then investors would say, well, you know, can I like find out more about this? Like, can you tell me about more about the algorithm? And they would say, absolutely not, no way. But then, you know, investors would kind of say, but you know, then I looked around them and they were just surrounded by amazing people. And they felt like they had done um, due diligence by proxy. So everyone was looking. So, you know, like investors were looking at, one investor said he was introduced to the company or tipped off about the company by PwC. And he said, you know, like the fact that PwC told me about this company meant that for me, it's totally legit. Like it's all above board. Then, you know, another investor said that he had looked at their investment documents and they had all of these people as advisors and non-execs who were like so impressive. And, you know, I spoke to some of those people, one who's like, you know, like a really impressive academic. 
And he had known Sandeep and Nita from like the kind of, you know, like conferencing. He had kind of like met them from time to time. And he was like, I had no idea I was in those documents. He said, you know, I just saw them now and again at conferences. And he said something quite interesting, actually, that people in the academic side of their world would always kind of say there's no way this exists. Like, this is just totally nonsense. I think like that's the thing. Like people really felt like I'm looking at this company and everyone else is in and all of these people are so impressive. So I need to get in too. And so, you know, rather than them saying, you know what, I just can't invest without more information about this algorithm. I need to see something concrete. They would just say everyone else is on the train, so I'm getting on the train. And, you know, the thing I think that was really hard for a lot of the people to take in the aftermath was when they saw this JavaScript, they realized that actually there was actually, even though it was really simple math, it was flawed. Even the really simple JavaScript was flawed and it couldn't take a blood pressure reading between 141 and 144. And, you know, one of the investors likened it to, you know, buying a ruler and five centimeters is missing. It was kind of like this thing where it's, it, there was just constant insult to injury, you know, in the aftermath. But I think that whole thing of due diligence by proxy and, you know, inflation of events by the founders, you know, the fact that they did this trial of their product at Bart's and an abstract of the trial was published in the Journal of Hypertension. And obviously in the world of like med tech and medicine, that kind of um, publication of results is so important, so crucial. But, you know, it was just an abstract. It was a really early trial. Everyone I spoke to who had been on that trial said, yeah, like, you know, we never used it in clinical practice. We were we were actually really interested in it, but like we can't go any further with something unless, you know, the inventors will share with us how it works. But regardless of that, you know, Sandeep and Nita still use that early trial as Look, this hospital has, you know, it's being used in practice. It's being used by a hospital. Look, it's in the Journal of Hypertension. And again, if you're someone, which I guess the average person is, who doesn't really understand that, you know, an early trial is published as an abstract and actually maybe these things happen frequently, you know, like things get tested, people will give things a try. You would just think, wow, like, you know, this is so impressive. I really think that a lot of people... Everyone just wanted to get on this train to create this product because they thought, if I'm the one who's not on the train, then I'm going to be the idiot that missed out. Yeah, ultimate investor FOMO. And it does it does happen and you hear it a lot. And, you know, we only need one anchor investor like that and you can sort of use their name to get the next person and then it just sort of becomes a runaway train. I'd love to know, there was like an investor, Mark Rowan, right? He found all this out in 2016 and tried to wind up the company that was dismissed for an administrative error. A, what does that even mean? I mean, that sounds absolutely shocking from the legal side. I don't even get it. And B, why didn't he then pursue other people stopping, like, stopping other people investing in this company? And, you know, what happened there? Well, you know, it was really interesting because I spoke to Mark. Um, he was hard to get, you know, he was hard to find. And eventually, you know, I sort of, I think I tracked down, he was like a director for some company. I just kind of guessed his email address. And um, yeah, and he, he was sort of, you know, we had a great chat. Like he had amazing patter for like two or three hours. And 
the whole administrative error thing, so this is what he said. He wouldn't go into it. I tried to, I chased his lawyer for about a year. Uh, they would never call me back. And one of the other investors said to me, yeah, yeah, like that guy, he, there was something wrong with how he filed the documents to the court. And basically the case was thrown out. And not only did he ha- did, did he lose the 300K that he'd put into the company, but also he had to pay the Shah's legal fees. And somebody also said, although I wasn't able to stand this up, but somebody also said that in losing all of that money and having to pay the fees, uh, Mark Brown's own company went under. So I kind of wonder if after all of that, he was just like done, you know? One final thing I wanted to know was, how should we think about Dr. Sandeep Shah? I wish I knew at which point it became ego. You know, like definitely the lasting impression on people who knew Sandeep and worked for his company was that he was a narcissist and that all of this was about his ego. And, you know, and I think that essentially the pursuit for him became the creation of this identity, the the, the perpetuation of his identity as like this genius, as this inventor, as this person who had done something that was groundbreaking. And actually, you know, we see I see this in my line of work every day you know like when we're researching influencers we find we uncover things which blow the perception that they are putting forward out of the water and so you know I kind of I think this is actually a growing problem I think that the pursuit of perception as opposed to product is going to be a massive problem in our startup community over the next 10 years and I guarantee it already is and also you know the thing that I think was really interesting to me about this was you know I consulted for several startups when I was a consultant and it's the ego of founders that destroy companies it leads to massive staff turnover it ruins culture it actually stops culture from existing because what the founder wants is is so different to what the team want. You know, the team wants to be inspired. They want to create. They want to, like, build. And the founder's like, I want to be in the cupboard of Wired. Oh, well, it was in 2016, you know, like when I was doing this consultancy. So the ego of founders is something that I think, you know, anyone listening to this and, you know, I think definitely the thing that I can take away from all of it is if you want to succeed you better check your ego and if you get there like if if you become that person you you build the product you build the company the ARR is good the MRR is good you know like yeah sure have that ego because you earned it but you know founders who have that massive ego in the early stages where they just want to be famous essentially in my experience it's a story for disaster. And this story confirms it. So well said. Sarah, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing the story. Um, where can people follow you? Where can they find out, find out more about what you're actually up to with Cork? Sure. So um, our website is cork.studio. And we have... Cork with a Q, it's worth saying. Cork with a Q, yes. Uh, she says, after talking about Eagle, you know, my name is Sarah McCorkadale. I literally named my company after myself. I was going to say, but I felt like this wasn't the time to, uh, to take the piss. <laughs> <laughs> they have 
that's the irony of it. In my defense, it wasn't my idea. <laughs> um, but yeah, so we're at cork.studio. Um, we're doing so much. Uh, come and check us out. Um, I'm at Sarah Corker on Twitter. I actually mostly tweet things that my son said to me. And, you know, I still work as a journalist um, now and again. You know, I write for various places a couple of times a year. Um, my book is Influence, How Social Media Influencers Are Shaping Our Digital Future. And the second edition of that was published at the start of this year by Bloomsbury. And that's it. Amazing. Sarah, it's been a massive pleasure. Thanks so much for joining. Thank you. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. Next week on Secret Leaders. One of the things I realized when I started this company is that I believe before starting France that, you know, if you have a good idea, if France is a good idea operating in a big market at the right moment, then the company is going to be successful. And it's absolutely wrong. Like the truth is, if you are not focused on the right things, if you don't hire the right people, then your company isn't going to be successful independently from how good your idea is. That was Mathilde Collin, the co-founder and CEO of Front, an email platform that helps businesses manage the ridiculous amount of emails they get. She founded the startup in France, but they moved to Silicon Valley, having gone through the legendary Y Combinator experience. She's developed some brilliant habits to become more effective and scale her business. Tune in next week to find out what she does differently. This episode was hosted by me, Dan Murray-Serta. It was produced by Rich Martel with editing done by Lower Street Media.